Welcome back to the Librarian Linkover podcast. I am your host, Laureen Kennard. I love it when library-related organizations are run by librarians. We have leadership, management, and budget skills. Why shouldn't we lead ourselves? My guest today is Nancy S. Kirkpatrick. Nancy is Executive Director and CEO of OhioNet, with 300 members and over 4,000 libraries and information centers in Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and New York. I'm excited to talk to her about her, how her library skills come in handy while running a large library-related organization and reporting to a board of directors. Nancy, welcome to the Librarian Linkover. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Great. Give us an idea of the kinds of projects you work on. Okay. So OhioNet has four main service areas. We provide um, group purchasing of electronic resources and library and equipment and supplies to library uh, member libraries. We provide training and professional development opportunities. We provide technology services to some subgroups of membership, so smaller consortium within the consortium, um, like academic libraries, public libraries, and then we've just added consulting service consulting mm -hmm. services. So my focus um, right now is growing on consulting services. And we just hired a new director, Michelle Bradley, to run that and a project manager, Heather Ladisky. And it's it's really interesting because Heather and um, Michelle bring a background of appreciative inquiry. And the reason I find that interesting is we really want to bring strengths-based solutions to library challenges instead of instead of a, our kind of our traditional deficit mindset and you know kind of oh no everything's going wrong, what can we do about it? We want to start from a what's going right, how can we do more of that and help and, and just change the way we look at the challenges that we have. So um, so a lot of the things that they're doing, like I said, draw from um, the practice of appreciative inquiry and positive psychology. And I'm very interested to see what that will do for the libraries we work with. Oh, that sounds interesting. When you started your job and looked at the budget for the first time, what did you look for? Oh, that's a great question. I actually looked at the budget before I started. So mm. because I work for our 501c3, I pulled up several years of their 990s because I kind of wanted to see how things were going where I got there. And it's a good way to assess the health of an organization. Um, so, and yeah, and it let me know what I was walking into. So because we're a nonprofit, we have to make sure we make enough revenue to cover our costs. But luckily we don't have the pressure of like, you have to meet this sales goal in order to like, make shareholders happy, for example. So mm -hmm. um, I looked at, I kind of looked at everything from oper like operational side to, you know, how much are we paying for these things and do we need to be paying for them to salary side. And one of the things that I noted when I started was that uh, there hadn't really been a lot of salary adjustments in the last several years. So I, one of my first things was to try to figure out how could we show the staff that we valued them by increasing salaries while still working with a limited budget. And, mm -hmm. and we did find some ways, some creative ways to do that, so. Great, I'm sure that was appreciated. It, yes, I, I think that it was, <laughs> so. What are some ways you've saved your organization money? Yeah, so, all right, so in reviewing our budget, uh, a couple of things, we I reviewed literally every service that we had and every service provider, who was our banker, who's providing our insurance, who's providing our health insurance, all that kind of thing. And there were places, for example, on the health insurance side where we could join with another group or find a different service provider and, and recognize significant savings in those costs to the organization without passing them on to the individual. Because that was part of the challenge was I want to save Ohio net money, but we also have to keep our staff and, and our members in mind when we do that. So um, health insurance was one area that we were able to 
Um, little things like we're subscribed to 27 magazines. Is anybody actually reading them? You know, or are we mm -hmm. just passing around off? And we, and for the most part, we weren't. So we, it ended up being that there were like three magazines that we actually cared about. So let's keep subscribing to those and let's save a couple hundred bucks on the ones we're not reading. Um, trying to think what other ways those are kind of the two of the bigger ways that we did it and then and we were with those savings like I said able to adjust people's salaries as well and make sure that they were that they were compensated for all their hard work so that's a good use of the savings yeah I thought so again and so do they and it's and it's interesting <laughs> because I do feel like if you there has to be a little bit of a I don't know if faith is the right word but it kind of was so there was a point at which I was like we have to pay people more no matter what the revenue is but i also felt like if we do this it will it will come back to us in one way or another and it did like investing in our people investing in their professional not just salary but like professional development opportunities and making sure they could go to conferences that somehow has resulted in us having more revenue and i think i mean like it's anecdotal but it's but and it's also happening like it's happened for three years in a row now so yeah invest in people yeah, this is super smart. So what traditional, using air quotes on a podcast, as I like to do, what traditional library skills do you use in your job? Oh, so many, so many. So uh, reference interview is probably the first one that I think of, right? Because my job is relationships, really. So I talk to a lot of people in libraries, out of libraries. I talk to business people. I talk to our um you know, our TIA uh, representatives because we manage some investment funds for the organization. So just being able to ask good questions and then listen and make sure you're getting what it is that they're saying is something I use every day. Um, I also use my research skills a lot because again, you just, I feel like you, I never knew how to really, I was a good researcher before library school. I, at least I thought I was, and I probably was okay. But after going to library school, I feel like my research skills are were increased, you know, tenfold in my ability to find what I need quickly. Um, the, the ability to know what resource to look at, you know, is certainly helpful. So I research a lot. And then data collection and analysis, I think, is the last big one that I use, because whether it's being presented with five different options for health insurance and trying to figure out what makes sense for the org or, you know, um, looking at vendor contracts for electronic resource purchasing, that kind of thing. There's always, there's often a lot of data coming at me and the, the ability to filter that again, and figure out what's important and what's not, and then synergize it and summarize it in a way that I can share it with other people um, gets used all the time. We have so many skills we can use in so many places, right? We do. Yeah, they're, library skills are really transferable. It, and I can't, I honestly can't think of a place where they're not. I joke with my kids that well, not even just my kids, but my family will be like, you have a library degree. Why, why, why did you go to library school? Are you just, you need a degree to shelve books. And I'm like, oh, gosh. what librarianship is, right? Like, I feel like you have to start over and go, no, let's talk about what libraries do. And then the example I always give to them is Amazon wouldn't work without library. Like somebody mm -hmm. has to categorize all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So whether you're at your local grocery store or buying something from Amazon, you know, somebody has to create a system for organization. Somebody has to figure out how to maintain it. Somebody, it, and it really feeds into every aspect of your life, even if you don't realize it. And I said, my guess is that at the heart of many of those things, there is a librarian or an information science person who's doing all that heavy work that makes it seem easy for you. And then they kind of go, oh, I never thought about that. That makes <laughs> more sense, you know, so yeah.
when I was a public library director, some of my cousins were like, what exactly do you do? And I'm like, I don't even know how to explain it to you. Right. Everything you do. I never see the books. I never like, I, it's not, you know, it's just, I'm doing everything. I don't even know how to explain it. Right. It took me a minute to like, think about like what I'm actually doing because we're doing everything. Yes. And if you're in administration, especially, yeah, if you're a public library director, you really are doing everything. I mean, you might be helping somebody find a book, but you Mm -hmm. could also be, you know, preparing for your board meeting, or you could be putting paper in the copier, or you you just don't know. You wear a lot of hats (laughs) in those roles. It's like, how much time do you have? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Right. You want to know? Right. Get a cup of coffee. It's going to take a minute. Right. How do you add value to your organization because of your library skills and experiences? Oh, I think that um, being in administration is one thing, but because we are a membership organization serving libraries, the fact that I have worked in libraries makes me, it makes me relatable to our members and it gives me really a truer understanding of the challenges that they're facing. So before I came to Consortia, I was an academic library director uh, at Marion University in Indianapolis. So like you, uh, I, I wore a lot of hats I did fill the copy machines and, mm-hmm. you know, if, if there was a flood in the bathroom, you would address that until custodial people would show up. I mean, you had to do all the things, right? But it also, um, yeah, so when I talk to my members or when my members come to us and say, this is a challenge we're experiencing, it's, it, I think it, it makes it, uh, I think it helps our organization that we can relate to them. And frankly, at our, at our organization, I think over half of us have our library degrees. So we are really lucky as a library consortium, there are maybe three people out of the 14 of us that don't, three or four, but everybody else, yeah, has that experience and really in both public and academic libraries. And so it, I think it brings a lot of value to the work that we do. I'm sure your members appreciate that, knowing that almost every time they call, they're going to get someone who knows what they're doing. Yeah. Not that they have to know, but it's, it's just an extra level of the knowledge that they already, they can, they just have that knowledge. They don't have to explain things. Right. That's exactly right. It, it kind of, and especially if you're um, experiencing an issue, it, you don't have to get frustrated in the explaining the context again, because we already have that context going in. So it's mm-hmm. it kind of helps them get more quickly to resolution or whatever the challenge might be. Right. What suggestions can you give librarians who want to make a move into a position like yours? Oh, um, do lots of research, right? So <laughs> I think there are lots of library membership organizations. I'm kind of using that term broadly out there. So there's lots of consortium and they do different things. So I guess if you're interested in working in administration or working with libraries, but not necessarily working in a library, um, look at things like um, the iCalc website. iCalc stands for the International Coalition of Library Consortium, just to get a sense of like maybe who's in your state. You can, you can go there and figure out your state or your country or your region um, and figure out who's near you and figure out what kinds of libraries they serve because some, you know, some organizations are, are about providing services, some are doing advocacy, um, some are running systems and doing technology related services. So there's a lot of different opportunities within consortia. Um, so that's, yeah, so I would say, yeah, do a little research, see what's out there. And then um, also consider government jobs. So there may be 
they may not call them consortium, but there are certainly government services that are serving libraries in very similar ways to consortium. And then I would I would also say look at adjacent industries, so museums, archives, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Because if there's not something in a library specific field, there might be something that's close enough that so you know would value your library degree and provide an interesting opportunity for you. I'll put a link to the iCall website in the show notes so people. Oh, cool! That'll that. be great. Yeah. So you were practicing law before you went to library school. Why did you go to library school? And based on your career so far with both of those degrees, does that reasoning still hold? Uh, yeah, so yes, <laughs> I was, right? I'm like, that's a, that's a, this question will take a minute. So I, um, <laughs> I was practicing law and really, I was gonna say really enjoyed it, but that might be stating it too strongly. Um, I did enjoy what I did. I, I did a lot of contract work when I first, like when I first got out of law school and was studying for the bar. So, um, and I enjoyed it, but I finally landed in a job as a policy advocate for family and children's services in Minneapolis. So it was really, it was interesting because it was very meaningful work, but it was also working for a nonprofit. So the pay was bad mm -hmm. and I had two small children. And so by the time I, you know, paid for parking downtown and dry cleaning suits and daycare and all that stuff. I was basically paying them to have the, uh, you know, the honor of working at the organization. So it just, for our family, it just didn't make sense. So at that point it was like, you know, I had a conversation with my husband and we said, this really doesn't make sense. So, um, so I decided, we decided that it was best for me to stay home and raise our kids for a minute. So I quit uh, the practice of law. And in Minnesota, you could go at the time, you could go on retired status. Like they basically had a provision that that working parents who were going to stop practicing could could change their status to retired, which meant that I didn't have to worry about continuing education and that kind of thing while I was home, which was kind mm -hmm. of a nice thing. Now I still paid attention to stuff, but I didn't, you know, there was no requirement to take 30 CE hours a year or whatever. Um, and then while I was home, my law school library dean contacted me and said, have you ever thought about library school? And I was like, no, I mean, like, <laughs> cool. You know, I, I really nope. enjoyed your class, but no, I have my hands full with a, you know, a four-year-old and a one-year-old and I can't even imagine doing anything. And he was like, well, there's a lot of scholarship things out there. He was like, I think you should think about it. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll think about it. And then like a year or two later, I called him and said, tell me more about this library school thing. Cause I think now I'm, you know, like my kids are a little older, they're going to be going back to school. And unlike law, librarianship didn't seem like it would penalize me for having paused my career to raise a family, mm -hmm. you know, getting back into law. Cause I did look at getting back into law and it was, it was really hard because I hadn't been practicing for almost, I was home with my kids almost 10 years full time. So you know, it was like, what is this gap about? Well, literally on my resume, I have full-time parents, you know, 2000 to 2008 or whatever it is. And lawyers are like, what? That doesn't make <laughs> sense. Versus no library job I ever interviewed for said, why did you do that? They just kind of read it and kept it moving. Like, so it was nice to be in a field that didn't penalize me for the fact that I wanted to raise my kids. So I went and I was able to do the LEAP program at the University of Illinois. Mm -hmm. So I was, so it was really nice to be able to go to school in the evenings, you know, and I love that there it was synchronous because otherwise I don't think I would have ever gotten through. So, you know, in the evenings I'm doing class from the dining room while the kids are running around the background. And then <laughs> during the day while they're in preschool and kindergarten, I could get some work done. Um, and it really just worked out well with my 
I guess, with their schooling and where I was at the time. So by the time my youngest started kindergarten, I had finished my degree and could go out and go back to work. Um, and, and the other thing about librarianship that I really appreciate is that it really does value whatever experience you've had in life before you got there, right? So mm -hmm. I don't care if you were, if you worked in an adjacent field or not, or something completely unrelated, you, the skills that you bring from any other endeavor, I feel like will find some way to be applicable in librarianship because you're, because you are dealing with administration, but there's also customer service stuff and there's all, you know, there's so many transferable things that you can bring in. So it was nice to be in a field that, that valued all of that varied experience that I brought. Um, and I would say that based on my career so far, that reasoning definitely still holds. So Good. it's, yeah, when I was a library director, I'm not sure that the law background helped as much. The contract experience did a little bit, but it wasn't as big of a deal. But when I got into consortium, uh, my first job was the e-resources coordinator for a consortium. So my job was the contracts, the licenses and negotiation. And, and it was, it was, I found, I felt lucky because I felt like I found a job that valued my weird, unique mix of, I have a law degree and a law background and passed the bar, but also I have this library experience. And so consortia is a, you know, so if you had an MBA, for example, and a library degree or business experience too, I feel like that would be a really good fit for consortium leadership. So interesting. Yeah. So what professional associations are you in or which ones have you found most useful? Oh, I feel like I've been in all of them. When I was a student, I, well, when I was a student, right? There's I so many. Everything as a student, right, because I wasn't right. sure what I wanted to do. So as a student, I was in uh, AAL, which is the American Association of Law Librarians. I was in ATLA, which is the Theological Librarian, you know, group. I was in SLA. I was in ALA. And again, it was, it was mostly because, you know, for 15 bucks a year, you could join mm -hmm. them, you could get on their list, you could see what jobs were coming your way, and you could go to conferences and things at a much reduced rate. Um, so, at, yeah, a long time ago, I was in everything. Now I'm, I'm a lifetime member of ALA. So that's, I mean, I'll be in ALA forever. Um, and then what else am I in? We're looking at joining IFLA at Ohio Net. Oh. So we're not currently members, but I've heard lots of good things about the work that they do. And in consortium world, especially, I feel like it makes sense. So um, I think we're going to join IFLA. And then I'm in uh, a group called We Here, which is not a professional association, but it is a group of library, museum, archives professionals who um, get together and network and support each other professionally. And it's so it's for BIPOC professionals in our field. Um, they have a Facebook group. They have a website they're they're on slack and a couple of other places so and they're but it's interesting because they really have been careful to set that community up as a safe space for people of color to come and and support each other and and engage with each other and there are also opportunities for um people who have not been historically excluded to support the organization and the work that they're trying to do so they, they are offering classes. Um, there's a lot of really good scholarship coming out of that group. So I think that's that to me has been one of the most useful. Um, and then I think people often overlook the little, the little, the local things in their area. Mm -hmm. Like there might be, and especially if you're, if you're not in a big city, there are often, you know, library associations in rural areas are doing really interesting things. And so it's, it's a good opportunity, at least before the pandemic, to get to know people in your area and, and see the work that they're doing and um, get involved that way as well. So I would say any sort of state or regional organizations that are doing library stuff are certainly worth checking out. 
And a lot of the local ones have free things. So you can at least try it and see what you think. Right. Free events, especially during like pandemic times. A lot of the virtual programs are free or very oh, nice. low cost just to see. Yeah. You can try it out and see, you know, what kind of if the programming really fits what you want to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's been interesting, too, during the pandemic. Um, I don't know if I call it a benefit, but I, I have certainly been able to attend programs across the country because mm-hmm. of their, when they went virtual that I wouldn't, would not normally have been able to attend. And so I, I do appreciate that libraries have been kind of leading in the, let's just open the doors and let all of our colleagues come and participate mm-hmm. in this thing that we're doing, um, which I know comes at a cost, both from a planning perspective and maybe you have to get a bigger Zoom license. But I'm really glad that we've been doing that because I think I've been exposed to speakers and ideas that I wouldn't have otherwise. And I would guess the same is true for many of us. The consortia that my um, academic library is in combined with like seven other consortia to provide continuing ed and professional development. Like if it's, if one of them offers it, they offer it to all of us. So I've done some really great programs from like Minnesota and like other, other uh, consortia. It's a great idea. And I think they started doing that before the pandemic. Interesting. I think I I could be wrong, but I think it was before. I think, and are, is that, did that happen maybe through, not through iCalc, but with some members who are in, who are iCalc members? Because I know, um, who do I want to say? I want to say that there was a consortium in North Carolina that had that idea initially. And and so maybe it's not the one that you guys are involved in, but yeah, there's a group within, a subgroup within iCalc that's got to be seven or 10 consortium that are doing that. And or every once in a while, I see the call go out that says, hey, if you're interested in joining us, here's how to get involved. And yeah, I think that's a great idea because because again, you've got all that expertise. You're already doing the programming. Why not open it up to other people in the field who could benefit from it? And a lot of these organizations are shrinking. So if you can get these speakers in front of a wider audience than just you know one or two different consortia, that's even good. That's good too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And it's great for the speakers too, right? Because mm-hmm. it could lead to more opportunities for them as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'll also put in the show notes the link to We Hear. Oh yes. Um, okay. Because I think that's useful that people need to know about. Um, yep. I've reached out to all the library school programs, the ALA accredited library school programs about my podcast mm-hmm. that, you know, jobs in many places are difficult to find. So here are some other ideas of things you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, my next project is to reach out to all HBCUs is say oh. the library degree is a, a great, you know, graduate program that your students should be thinking about. And here's yep. all the reasons why. Yep. So that's my next, um, my next big project because we're clearly, it's like 80% white women or something. We clearly that's not a good thing. We need to 86. diversify in many ways. And 86? Oh, geez. I think well, I think a lot of people of color have left because it's just really? not welcoming. Well, I've seen there have been different programs on why I left libraries. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah, well, I've watched those. Yes. <laughs> and I, I write like, down the names as, pod, as guests for my podcast because oh, they're doing sure. other things with their library skills. Exactly. I will find, I'm looking for, always looking for good guests. Yes. But I think, a, I don't know if that many percent have left, but a percentage of black people have left libraries because, oh, yeah. you know, and, if you're not yes, welcome, not you're just, not, why stay? Right. And yeah, not just black people, people of color broadly. But yeah, it, I think Elena Norlin at Acerl hosted one or two of those why I left libraries um, uh, webinars. So if you're looking for more people to, t- you know, I would touch base with her because she's a really great resource. And um, you're right. It, the, the challenge is we are literally, people of color are literally leaving the profession at the same rate that we're entering. So, you know, I mean, ALA recognized this was a problem, what, 20 plus years ago when they created the Spectrum Scholarship Program. And there are other programs. I think ARL has something very similar or kind of that runs parallel. But yeah, the, the problem isn't just recruiting us to get us to the field. It's creating 
welcoming need support once you're here environments throughout throughout your career so it's one thing to be welcomed when you start but also five years down the road is there a path for you to reach middle management if that's your aspiration or you know what what are we providing for mid-career and later career support and yeah and how are we creating truly spaces that really are inclusive where people feel like they belong instead of feeling tokenized and i think if we can figure out how to do that then people of color will stay in the profession and and we, we really need them i my kids never walked into a library and saw somebody who looked like them until i became a librarian wow and we lived in atlanta wow we lived in indianapolis we lived in you know major metropolitan areas but they just i mean they never even in college, they they don't see, you know, people who look like that. So, and if you can't see yourself in a profession, then you can't imagine ever having that job. So, yeah, we certainly have some work to do, but I think we can do it. Absolutely. And, you know, they have to know it's an option. Yeah. You know, so I figured my little podcast, I'll let them know that, you know, maybe they'll listen to some of them and maybe they'll something will hit that, you know, like a lot of us, that that seems like a place we want to be, like that kind right. of work. Right. Well, and because it's so diverse and so interesting and yeah, it's not just about shelving books or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I know, <laughs> well, and I'm lucky because at Ohio net, one of our board members had this, had this great idea and said, what if we created some sort of post baccalaureate program to support library students and help them graduate debt free? And what, like, what would, what, how could we do that? What would that look like? And the conversation it, initially, the the board was very like, yes, let's do this. And then we started getting into the research of it and like, well, how do we do this well? And realized that we had kind of put the cart before the horse. So we took a step back, and right now what we're doing is trying to figure out what if we create that program, what does it need to be successful? So how do we how do we make it sustainable? How do we make sure that the students who are in it are actually getting the support, all the support they need? So maybe that's not just tuition dollars. Maybe it's um, money for professional development. It's it's networking and relationships. It's giving them experiences working in different types of libraries, right? So so that when they graduate, they are debt free and supported and can and have experience to go out and get another position. So I'm I'm excited to see where that leads because I know that there is I know at least with my board that they are willing to put their money where their mouth is, right? So they will when they have a plan and it makes sense. It literally I. If I had to, if I was a betting person, I would bet that they will approve it and, and get it started. And so that will just be one way that we can show here's an approach to doing that. But again, we kind of, instead of just jumping in without thinking about it, we really were like, because the problem was we didn't want to just create this opportunity and have like one student and then where's their support, right? Then right. they still feel isolated while they're going through the program. So part of the research we're trying to do is how can we get other library organizations in Ohio perhaps to also sponsor a student and then we can create a cohort so they have each other yes. to log on. So if any of my friends at other Ohio libraries are <laughs> listening, don't be surprised when I come asking you if you <laughs> consider creating this opportunity. Because again, we can't we can't expect them to do it alone and nor can we do it alone either. But if if we all decide to come in this together and you know come up with a solution, I think there's nothing we can't do. I'm glad you gave that example that of what OhioNet wants to do, because the last couple of years in libraries, there's been so many programs on DEI and what we should be doing and how to evaluate our collection and everything. I would hope like in a couple of years, the, all the programs will be, here's what we did. Yes. Because like at this point right now, if you're watching a program on what you should be doing, you're behind. Right. So, so we can have all these programs. We can buy all the books. They were all bestseller lists last summer. Yep, buy all yep. the books. 
have all the programs about what we should be doing, but we have to do it. So then right. next year or in two years, let's have all these people come back and say, I watched this program and here's what we did. And here's right. the outcome. Because yeah. you have to do this stuff. You have yeah. to, it has to happen and be sustainable. You can't just say, well, we went to five DEI programs this year. Well, what right. did you do yeah. with that information? Right, right. You what changes to... did you make? What improvements exactly. did you make? Exactly. Yes, you have to take action. And it's, it's not just about learning. And that's, I think that's one thing I find maybe frustrating in librarianship is that we know that the lack of diversity has been a problem in our profession for forever. Like I was reading, and I'm sure this came from one of the We Hear resources that I looked at, but one of them, somebody posted like information and minutes from an ALA meeting in, I'm going to say the early 1900s and back. So a hundred <laughs> years ago, librarians were already bemoaning the fact that our profession wasn't diverse enough. And a hundred years later, we're still not much better than we were, right? So let's quit talking about it and let's, so let's it. start being about it, right? right? Because that's the only way we're going to see any real change. So right. I'm with you. I look forward to, yeah, three years from now saying after all the events that happened in 2020 and 21, and we realized that we were doing nothing or doing a terrible job, what have we done since then? And, and whose lives has, has it affected and how have we made it better? And also, what do we still need to work on? Because it's kind of, it's a never ending process, right? It's not like we're gonna solve you know, the lack of diversity in our fields. We can try to make it better, but racism isn't going away unless we all work together to make to do mm -hmm. something about it. So how do, we, how do we get the momentum behind that hard work and how do we keep it going? And hopefully in like, I don't know, five, 10 years, it's not 86% white women. Right. It's, it's even more less. than the, yeah. Cause it's, I mean, yeah, it, it's the percentage. As a white woman, I'm saying that it has to be more, yeah. we need more, a more variety of people. Yes, we need historically excluded people from all, from all areas need to be in librarianship. So it's not, it's a race thing, but it's not just a race thing. Right. right. And yeah. And, and we really do, we do need to do better. Um, but that also means that some people are going to have to be willing to step out of the way. So I don't know if that's retirements. I don't know if that's creating more opportunities. I don't, I mean, again, this is the hard thing that we don't want to talk about. Right. But, but that's where leadership comes in. Right. That's where good leadership comes in and says, here's what we're doing. Right. And either get on board or right. You know, here's enjoy what we're your, willing to give the rest up of your life help. somewhere else. Right. Well, and here's what we're willing to give up to help solve this problem, because it's not really giving up. You, mm -mm. You're giving up something in one area to gain something much greater in another area. So, and, and really it's, it's better for the overall health of your organization mm -hmm. as well. I mean, right. diverse organizations are that those having a diverse staff doesn't just make it better for the people of color there. It makes it a richer experience for everybody who works there. So it, it and the whole community everybody. and the whole community. Yep. We could do another whole yeah, podcast on that. <laughs> I just, I watched last night, the 1619 book project, um, book party. So yeah. I'm still like excited oh. from that. It was two hours. Oh, I didn't see Nicole that. Okay. Jones, I... Ibram Kendi. Yeah. Um, I just, yeah, so I'm oh, so I bet excited it was about great. that. Great. I listened it to was. the podcast, but I didn't realize, okay, I'll have to go back and find, yeah, find the, yeah, the link to that good. online. Yeah, cool. But I, and I'm linking, I've seen all this social media about all these books. Everyone's buying this book. Like, white people need to buy the book too. Like, that's, everyone needs to buy the book. Yeah. Everyone and then needs also to go read to the it. library and read it. And, and then also apply and, what you right. learn. Yeah. Right. So it's not, yeah, it's not just about building our collections because we are great at that. 
it's, you know, what programming are you doing around it? What mm -hmm. is, how is your staff learning from it? What are you doing differently? Um, yeah. You have to serve no, the what community are you doing based on what you learned. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, this has been great. Um, one more question. Where can people yeah. find you or your organization on social media? Oh, we are, I don't really do. If you um, want to be found. Social media. <laughs> yeah, I, I am not a big uh, social media fan, but um, they can find OhioNet at OhioNet on all the things. So Facebook, okay. Twitter, LinkedIn, it's just, yeah, at OhioNet, one word. Um, and we, ha we have a great communications manager who runs those platforms. So if you want to know what kind of program we're programming we're doing, or, you know, what's coming up, or if you have ideas for like, okay, Nancy, you were talking, talking about this thing. Now we need to program on it. Let me know. And we'll try to work it into the curriculum. Wow. Well, this has been an excellent conversation. Thank you so much for doing this because there's only a few of you running state library associations. So it's, yeah. I've, I've talked to the Illinois person. Um, okay. She was really great. So now I'm doing Ohio. I don't know if I'm moving East. I need to go West. Right. I was going to say some other a, yeah. direction and <laughs> get some more perspectives, but but um, yeah. I think running a running a state library association to me is so interesting because it's all types. Right. Like, how do you serve everybody? You're serving all types. We are, and we do, and it's yeah, it's challenging certainly. Um, because but you're right, we do serve all types. We serve yeah the public, the academics, all the K-12s, and special libraries. But I think one of the great things about being a statewide organization is that we also provide a place for those librarians to talk to each other that they might not have otherwise, right? Mm -hmm. So they really have an opportunity to mm -hmm. learn from each other and to figure out what's working and what's not and share ideas. And so yeah, I it's I think it's great. It's a it's a great place to be and. Hopefully you can find some more uh, more people to interview who are doing similar type of work and share their experiences as well. I do too. Well, again, thank you so much. This has been a really good conversation. I appreciate your time. Thanks, you're very welcome. Thank you to Nancy S. Kirkpatrick for being my guest today on The Librarian Linkover. I've been getting such positive feedback from listeners on my guests and my interviews. Please like and follow The Librarian Linkover on your favorite podcast app, follow on social media, and visit thelibrarianlinkover.com. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.